listening to Sidious Playground, a podcast by Leadership Foundations. I'm your host, Rick Enlow, and I'm here with Leadership Foundation President Dave Hillis. How are you doing, Dave? I'm good, Rick. Thanks for asking. Yeah, well, I'm excited because we're on this journey, kind of a new series of conversations uh, in this year called uh, Traditioned Innovation. And for those who are curious about that phrase, we spent an entire podcast uh, batting that around. And so we recommend mm-hmm. you to, you know, because a lot of people, they binge listen. You know, they grab two or three at a time. <laughs> but we talked about that in our last episode. But tell me um, just briefly, you know, uh, review uh, for the newbies what that's about and then lead us into an example of that, Dave. Yeah. Yeah, I think, Rick, again, it comes out of uh, uh, or it comes from maybe a lot of different places. But the uh, the two that I would make mention of is one, just our current reality that 2020 and what we are suspecting 2021 is going to call forth from us is a kind of courage, a kind of leadership that's going to need to be deeply anchored um, mm-hmm. and and is in touch with its uh, its taproot. The second is this uh, marvelous little, um, almost enigmatic um, parable that Jesus uses at the end of Matthew 13, where he describes the kingdom of God as a uh, essentially a house owner uh, that goes into the house and pulls out of it that which is both old and new. Mm-hmm. And so it was really in that context, uh, Rick, that we fashioned this term traditioned innovation as best capturing uh, both the uh, the foundation that we need by which to kind of just say, okay, um, in the midst of this you know pretty high velocity around us, I've got some some sense of of surety, but also recognizing that what's coming around the corner, uh, we have no idea, and so we've got to be prepared and have the capacity to innovate. So it's in that context that that LF is thinking about this, and and a particular traditioned innovation that. Um, has captured me, and I've been sort of working with this, Rick, for a number of years, uh, is uh, what, again, the Jesuits who I go to, you know, uh, mm-hmm. many times is their um, kind of um, uh, way of proceeding. So just a little bit of context here, and then we can jump into, you know, why this is important to LF. You know, uh, there was nothing like Ignatius um, you know, prior to Ignatius, um, you know, to be a religious uh, in the Catholic Church meant you went off to the monastery, mm-hmm. and uh, that was pretty, pretty tradition, right? It had been going on for the better part of uh, a thousand years, uh, going back to uh, Benedict himself, and so the script was was laid out. But Ignatius came in and effectively said, you know, there's a world opening up, right? The Renaissance is happening, and the Church, by and large, is not out there. Mm-hmm. And so he began to imagine and to innovate, could we put a religious order together that instead of it being, you know, uh, in a monastery, um, was actually set free. He oftentimes talked about the best posture of a Jesuit is with one foot in the air, uh, the notion that they were they were moving, right, that, mm. that they were contemplatives in action. Um his other bit of genius, though, was recognizing already that the Jesuit that gets to Sao Paulo, Brazil, is probably uh, going to be in a very different context than the Jesuit that gets to uh, Tokyo, Japan, mm-hmm. um, or to you know Vancouver, British Columbia. 
and you recognize that you couldn't be prescriptive, right? You couldn't tell them, hey, here's what you need to do. At the same time, he recognized, though, that he had to make sure, though, that there was a, a kind of method, right, to this madness, that as he sent these uh, men out, uh, was there something they, they held in common? And so what I think profoundly Ignatius came up with is that instead of describing for the order, here is what you are going to do, what I want to place the accent on is here is how you are going to think about it. Uh, and it's that, that how you think about it um, that became their way of proceeding. Mm-hmm. Well, I you know, kind of looked into that, uh, again, through Chris Lowney's book, Heroic Leadership, and some other sources, and thought, well, that's exactly what uh, LF needs, mm-hmm. right? Because our leadership foundation in Abish- with Abishake in Delhi has got a very different reality than what Will McCall has in Dallas mm-hmm. and what is working for David Hahn uh, in a place like, you know, Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, is going to be different than what is working for our leadership foundation in Maputo, Mozambique. So instead of, again, saying, you know, here is is what you will do on the ground, what we really try to do is develop our own way of proceeding. Mm-hmm. Um, what are going to be those those characteristics that are going to allow a person like Will and Abishak, again, in very different contexts, to be able to uh, have a common language, uh, to be able to trust each other um, as they you know, seek to be uh, relevant to their particular context. Yeah. Um, so it's, I think it's a good example of a, a historic tradition in the Jesuits that, again, we've, uh, we've repurposed um, for our uh, 21st century reality. Yeah, you know, it, and it, it is, uh, um, I think, one great metaphor for the traditioned innovation and what you're talking about as a way of proceeding. Uh, it reminds me somewhat of what the reality that we're experiencing now with the, with the COVID vaccines. They were all developed in a kind of a monastery setting. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. almost Benedictine in their development, you know, they were just the, you know, the, yeah, yeah. the geniuses that were just, it's, you know, working uh, away. And then once they were developed though, they're deployed in a variety, almost locally in a different way from, from each context. And so I thought, yeah. wow, that really is, reminds me of, of LF and the network because there are these particular ways that are common. And what's great about like you said, with Abishek or with uh, someone, you know, in, you know, in uh, Dallas, it, it, you can recognize the way in what someone else is doing, uh, you know, once you understand what it is, even though it looks different. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, it does exactly tie right. us together. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so maybe, uh, maybe kind of tease up four more things, Rick, that, that have undergirded uh, its importance to LF. You know, the first is what we call psychological safety. It's been interesting, Harvard Review and and, uh, uh, Business Review and others have, you know, been asking the perennial, you know, question about how and why do certain organizations thrive and others don't. And time and time again, what the data seems to lead them to is, is the ones that thrive have this quality of psychological safety. Hmm. And the ones that don't, uh, uh, don't have that. Right. And so then the question became, well, how does that get developed? And the way psychological safety gets developed is when everybody in the organization 
has a understanding of how we go about making decisions here, mm-hmm. right? In other words, just, you know, um, again, we might come up with a different kind of uh, decision for the question that we're wrestling with, but what doesn't move away, right? What doesn't move around uh, is this basic uh, resting heart rate sense that this is the way uh, that this organization goes about making uh, decisions. Mm-hmm. So this this um, notion of a way of proceeding, I think, really provides that sense of psychological safety. Uh, yeah. It allows someone like Abhishek to say, huh, you know, wouldn't probably have, have come up with that program or that idea or that decision uh, in Dallas the way that Will did, but I trust the way that Will went about mm-hmm. uh, making that decision. Yeah. And I think also that uh, you're, you know, all of our discussions about being a non-reactive leader does create a psychological safety because you realize, okay, that's what we're about. We're not going to be reactive, you know? So yeah. 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 You know, the second one is this idea that you need a process that aligns with your mission reality. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the things that oftentimes takes place in organizations is you have your, um, you know, vision, your mission and all of that. But it has absolutely nothing to do with the way that you actually go about, you know, making decisions. So in the case of of LF, we talk about this all the time, that, you know, cities are living, breathing organisms. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you put meat on that, Um, right? You have to develop a process that that accounts for these cities becoming living, breathing organisms. Um, that again, a, a Detroit, you know, is going to move and ebb uh, in ways, you know, different, um, you know, than a place like, you know, Fresno. Mm-hmm. So that that I think has been another uh, really significant assumption to this uh, this way of proceeding. The third is discernment. Um, we could say a lot about this, uh, Rick, but the, the basic idea here is that. Um, and this is oftentimes why within, again, the Jesuit order, but as well as others, they've said that the spiritual gift that precedes all other spiritual gifts um, is discernment. Uh, Because any of the other spiritual gifts, if they're not discerned rightly, can be abusive, Mm -hmm. right? So you can have a a gift of, of speaking in tongues, and that's to be praised, but used at the wrong time, uh, in the wrong place. I mean, right, we've all had that experience where it's like, I have no doubt there's a gift here, uh, but it just simply wasn't discerned correctly yeah. whether or not it was to be used Yeah, there's in a this, whole letter to the church in Corinth about that. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's that's a topic. And so so to put, again, a, a tool, a, a, you know, a way of proceeding into the hands of leadership foundations so that they can do that most important, um, you know, of spiritual gifting, which is to discern... Yeah, what's the Holy Spirit up to here? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how do I, and how do we as an organization begin to align ourselves with that? Yeah, I've always um, appreciated that about uh, LF's um, discernment process in that that uh, you hear it in the vocabulary that God's uh, has been and is at work, but we, you know, he's inviting us into that versus, you know, like we've right. talked about the fact that there's sometimes people communicate now that I've arrived you know, so is God, you know, and that's, that's right. not a discerning, I think, posture at all. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. And then the last kind of assumption in this uh, uh, 
notion here, a, a way of proceeding, is the ultimate goal, Rick, is to make uh, a local leadership foundation president and his or her, you know, colleagues, and really the local leadership foundation itself, uh, what we would describe as missionable. Um, and, it, you know, in effect, it's to free uh, women and men and organizations up as best as we can uh, through the baseline and ancillary services that we provide mm -hmm. them uh, to be able to use the wheel of change to do whatever it is that God tells them to do. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that might sound, I think, um, well, like, of course, but the truth is, is that a lot of work, um, I think, within the church, within the nonprofit space um, is prescriptive. Right, you're you're being measured. You're going to be awarded and rewarded on the basis that you deliver whatever it is that your organization does: water, you know, housing, health, food. Mm -hmm. LF tries to take a half step back and say, "Well, yeah, if that's what God wants us to do." But the real key is to get freed up to such a degree uh, that you can make you know, a zig or a zag uh, when you need to. Mm -hmm. And you're not beholden, right, to a particular kind of outcome. Um, and that's, again, what, you know, this whole notion of a, of a way of proceeding is ultimately attempting to do is not produce a product, uh, but produce a free man, a free woman who is now saying, how do I love my city? Um, mm -hmm. You know, and what are the ways that my city right now needs to be loved? Uh, perhaps it's a program. Right, but perhaps it is um, engaging the Catholic Church with the Lutheran Church, uh, two pastors who have never talked. Um, so there's a whole notion of, of ways that that could manifest itself, but it's all premised on whether or not you are missionable, mm -hmm. right? whether you are actually open to what the Holy Spirit would have you do. Not to um, wander off too far, Dave, but uh, I have been uh, taken by these uh, this new Star Wars series, and uh, it it only it just comes out for a few weeks, and then not for another year. It's it's all about the Mandalorian. Are you with me, Dave? I'm I'm kind of with you. Um, <laughs> anyway, I, uh, <laughs> it's just you know Star Wars, uh, you know classic, but it's it's this kind of yeah, new yeah. little series that happens, and it ends at the end of of December and it doesn't start you know for another year, so people just you know they just can't wait. But Go, but one yeah. of the, the big ideas is that the these there's a you know a group uh, of warriors, they're kind of bounty hunter type guys. And they have all this gear, you know, this space age kind of, but it's also very traditional. That's what I think is really interesting is because even the, mm. uh, the writers have kind of got a tradition to innovation. You know, they kind of use old yeah. school kind of yeah. medieval looking outfits, but it's in the, you know, it's way out there in the, in the future. But uh, one of the things is that if you're from Mandalore and you're part of this group, um, a lot of times they ask, why are you doing this? You know, like, why, why can't you do this? Why are you doing this? They, they're always being asked. Yeah. And their answer is, this is the way that's mm. their answer because that's, mm -hmm. it's called the Mandalorian way. It's just like, this is the way. And I think a lot about that, that uh, 
little episode or that little series kind of reminds me of LF because it's, it's you know, when you, when you ask somebody um, that's at work, you know, in one of God's cities and you, you know, they're a part of the LF network uh, they can't explain, you know, why, how are you doing this? Where are you doing this? What, what are you up to? Yeah. This yeah. is the LF way. And that yeah. is uh, um, very, I mean, it's obviously Jesuit, but it's also uh, been, uh, repurposed and and it's Absolutely. alive and well in the LF network. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Now, how about uh, our guest today? Mm-hmm. Tie uh, Lisa into this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lisa Slayton is a force of nature, and uh, so I'll I'll try to uh, limit my comments to that. Uh, she has become a very good friend. I. She was the third uh, president of the Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation, the mothership. Uh, beginning in 2012, I had the uh, great privilege of becoming her senior associate, which is uh, you know, being able to meet with her on a monthly basis just to kind of try to help and support and pray. And through that, um, Lisa led the Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation to uh, some, some wonderful places, uh, left uh, in 2018-ish, and in the course of that, uh, just because of her sheer talent, she also became a senior associate uh, for us. She uh, joined the LF Board of Directors, of which she still is currently on. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has been a part of a couple of really significant task force that I think has changed the course of LF for the better. And currently she is a, a consultant uh, with Tamman uh, Partners. But Lisa is probably one of the most articulate um, insightful um, people I know. She's got a rare combination of both being able to uh, understand and I think traffic uh, in the theological space, but turning it around almost on a dime uh, to what does this mean with regard to organizational life Mm -hmm. and leadership. And so I think we're going to, uh, our listeners are going to have a wonderful time listening to Lisa just uh, talk a bit uh, about uh, some of these traditioned innovations and how she is making use of that moving forward. Uh, we look forward to that conversation right now. And again, our, uh, our great uh, uh, force of interview himself, uh, Noah Basket, will be talking to Lisa Slayton. So let's listen in. Yeah, um, I am Lisa Slayton, uh, and I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, and I uh, run a a single-person consulting practice called Tameem Partners, which I've been doing for almost two years now. Um, And prior to that, I was the CEO of the Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation where for about six years where I worked for 14, so deeply embedded in the LF um, way of being in the world for quite a long time. Uh, I'm married to Roger. Uh, we have one adult child, Rain, um, and two Labrador retrievers uh, who we love. And we've um, been married for a long time, probably 40 years in June. So uh, feels like I'm not old enough to be married for that long, but, <laughs> but I am. So I have to deal with the reality of that. Um, and so that's a little bit about me. Nice. Hey, before we dive into Lisa, I wonder if you could say just a couple words about um, context. And I imagine that will come up in our conversation around a way of proceeding in discernment. Sure. Um, but, uh, you, you know, you are, we were talking before uh, we hit the record button around 
Pittsburgh. Um, mm-hmm. Could you just maybe sh- say a couple words about kind of your relationship to the city in which you find yourself? Sure. Um, yeah. So I have uh, I've lived in Pittsburgh for uh, 20. It'll be 28 years this year. Uh, we moved here in the early 90s for my husband's work and um, our our child was born here and raised here. And I became involved in uh, a faith community in the in the late 1990s uh, that led me to the to engage in a variety of ways in the life of the faith in our city and ultimately led me to the Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation in the early 2000s. Um, But have, uh, you know, the context of Pittsburgh is that it's it's a an old city. It's a working city. Um, It's it's an East Coast city with a Midwest ethos. In some ways, um, it's a working town, you know, built on the backs of labor, uh, you know, yeah. steel mills and coal mills and um, and manufacturing, which is still a big part of our economic environment here, although that's shifted a lot in, in the years that we've been here. Um, and uh, it's a it's a small town that has some big city uh, advantages, right, in terms of culture and mm. uh, and and innovation and some other kinds of things and it's a city fraught with its own set of challenges um it's not it's not as diverse a city as as i would want it to be it's hard Mm. diversity is hard here Mm. um and uh, it was grown and developed as a as an ethnically diverse city and there's still a lot of ethnic um presence in terms of neighborhoods you know there's there's the polish and irish and slovakian and german and areas of the city that still exude that kind of diversity um uh but not as as thoughtful and rich in terms of racial diversity uh and 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 there's some real implications around that um pittsburgh has been uh I don't know if accused is the right word, but has been labeled as one of the hardest cities to live in, particularly if you're a black single mom, for example, Mm. because Mm. access and advantage is just hard to gain here. So we're not without our challenges as a city. Yeah. Mm. Well, um, thanks for again, uh, setting aside the time, Lisa, we asked you, I invited you to maybe share a couple words with our uh, podcast listeners about um, this notion that we're going to be exploring around uh, a way of proceeding in light of, you know, the uncertain times that we find ourselves in and how quickly it is to move to action uh, without and proceed without really uh, uh, thinking about what is the way in which we proceed together. The term as I'm sure you're familiar, uh, actually comes from our, our Jesuit brothers and sisters, which uh, is a tradition uh, influenced a lot of us in the Leadership Foundation Network. So when we say that term, a way of proceeding, and even the, the concept embedded in there around discernment, what does that, what does that strike in you and what does that mean to you? Um, it's, uh, it's very meaningful. And I like the, I like the phraseology. Um, I, Come, I grew up in a Catholic tradition and, and had, was impacted significantly as a young child uh, by attending a Quaker school, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, but I think that, you know, it, it, 
how we make decisions is almost more important and choices and 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 the paths that we take is as important, if not more important than the outcome of those decisions. Um, a lot of things happen in a decision making or planning process or or anything that a, that a, co a collective group of people undertake together um, and and how we choose to do that matters um, to the outcome and and to the people who are involved in it. And and what I've seen uh, in my own work as a I do a lot of organizational development work and other things um, is that decision making is it reduced to one of two things, either sort of a command control, you know, here's the yeah. decision, you figure out your part in executing it, or it's consensus, which feels very messy and kind of reducing things down to the lowest common denominator to get some sort of agreement, which doesn't necessarily deliver the best outcome, right? But it's a, a way of, of feeling like, oh, everyone's had a voice. Um, and, and I do think there's a place for, for, there is certainly a place for consensus building, but that's not necessarily the best decision-making process. So how do we navigate together collectively um, a process of discernment that, that brings us to quality outcomes, but, and also builds alignment and engagement and participation along the way? And that, that's how I understand this idea of a way, a way to proceed. That's what we're, we want to do more of and do it in a better and healthier way. That's a, that's a great little reflection on how the danger of consensus building can just be lowest common denominator, right? right. So like, let's strip away everything that really matters to Lisa and to Noah, and we'll get to this kind of baseline kind of thing that we both agree on. Right. That kind of way of uh, kind of proceeding together, it like you said, it's it's kind of hard to be engaged when it's like <laughs> you strip away everything that actually matters to me. So I like yeah. that you're uh, describing, you know, know that what we're talking about as far as a, a way of discerning together in the context mm -hmm. of an organization is is deepening engagement, is kind of deepening uh, mutual understanding, uh, right. learning from one another, and and then. And proceeding as as we kind of appreciate the depth of one another. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I you used a phrase that I want to build on a little bit: the the idea of mutual understanding, which I think is largely misunderstood. Um, people, you say the word mutual understanding, but what they're hearing is mutual agreement, um, and those are different things, mm -hmm. right? Um, I, we can, you and I can get to a place of shared understanding or mutual understanding about something without agreeing on it, right? And, and what I have found over and over again, and there's, there's, I actually have a framework I use with people around dialogue um, that has demonstrated over and over again that if I can move to a place where I come to, to some reasonable degree of understanding your position on something or your view on something, and you can come to that place with me. I mean, you'll, I'll never see what you see or understand what you stand perfectly, but I can, in this exchange, we can get to a place of shared understanding. That gives us a, a, a broader platform to build from. And often that's where new possibilities emerge so that it doesn't have to be my way completely or your way completely. 
there may be things we'll never resolve in terms of differences or different perspectives on certain parts of it, but it gives us a place to build from where it's actually where innovation occurs, right? Um, it, it's not some random idea that drops out of the heavens it, as much as it is us finding this place of shared understanding and all these perspectives coming together to build a, a platform or a table that we can work from, which is very different than um, me trying to force agreement around my perspective so that I can get you to do what I want you to do. Right. Right. <laughs> which is how a lot of decision making actually happens. And, and the leader will often raise their hand and say, well, I shared my ideas with you and you all nodded and said you understood. So we were moving forward together. Right. Um, and then the outcome's never good. And we come back around and, you know, a month later, or three months later, it's like, well, that, you know, that didn't go the way I thought it would. And it's because there hasn't been that heavy lifting work up front of gaining a, a sense of mutual or shared understanding without trying to force difference resolution, right? We got to take that off the table in the early stages of, of a discernment process. Yeah, that's that's good. And I, I hear even your description of, yeah, the importance, especially in a place of leadership, of creating the space for that to happen. It takes, there's there's uh, space and time that discernment requires, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Maybe, um, you know, again, as, as a, a movement um, that tries to take, you know, the Holy Spirit's uh, presence seriously, and oftentimes in, you know, in faith context, when we talk about discernment, it's, you know, it's trying to understand uh, the movement of God's spirit. Yeah. How do you, um, how do you think about that? How do you think mm. about kind of discerning um, discernment in terms of kind of who God is and where God is um, at a given time, whether you're thinking about that in the context of your, you know, personal discernment or an organizational discernment, what, what, where does where does that kind of come into play for you, Lisa? Um, that's a great question. I, I think it comes into play in, I would call it um, a posture of attunement, um, whether it's for me personally or in in you know how I might be helping a group or participating in a group that's trying to discern. And I think it, it requires um, a couple of things. One is to shift out of a posture of evaluating and judging what we're hearing and uh, rather moving towards a posture of deep listening without evaluating and judging. Now, I, I tend to, um, one of the tools I often use with groups is, is to help them understand listening styles. And we all have a listening style um, and the the, I tend to listen very evaluatively so I can make quick evaluations and judgments about what I'm hearing. Yeah. Um, and that's very helpful in some environments, right? It's like I can see things and integrate things and, and say, here's what I'm seeing and here's how I think we should move. But I think I have to, I have had to learn to step back from that and, and take my time to listen deeply to not just what people are saying, but how they're saying it and then soak in it for a little bit, right? Like not rush to try and move something forward too quickly, but rather pay attention to what I'm hearing, how I'm hearing it, and, and then 
kind of allowing it to to process and um, and marinate a little bit. I'll give you an example. Maybe this will be helpful. Yeah. Um, in my own personal journey, uh, as I uh, uh, mentioned, I left the Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation about two years ago and launched my own consulting practice. And I was a few months into that process. Um, and uh, actually, it was just about a year ago because it was right after Christmas of 2019. And I invited uh, a handful of people who know me well and love me uh, and care about me to my house for lunch um, and and then asked them if they would stay for a couple of hours and uh, and and again I'd sent them a few questions to reflect on in advance because I was really trying to discern how I was called to move uh, and work in this next season and um, you know the questions I can't remember all of them exactly but the one was you know. Uh, you know, if you had to describe the unique music that I play, how would you describe that? Mm. <laughs> right. Mm. Um, if you, you know, how have you, how have I been most helpful to you in our relationship over the years? Um, you know, what is it that you think I particularly and uniquely offer that's, that differentiates me in, in the space I operate in. Those are, you know, I'm not used to having the attention focused on me. I'm usually the one in the room, you know, helping other people do this, but there's an old Quaker tradition called a clearing committee. And, um, and I have, I participated in clearing committees for other people over the last 15 years or so. Um, and, and I use that as a model and it was, uh, and a lot of it was, you know, I asked them to reflect on some questions and give me some input, but I also, we spent some time just sitting with one another and having them the, the way a clearing committee works, as I understand it, I'm certainly no expert, is that it's really just people sitting with you and asking you questions or raising questions that don't necessarily need an answer in the moment, but that they feel the Holy Spirit is bringing to them in, in this space that we've created. Um, and out of that, over time, then is it's a part of a process of discernment. You know, what did those questions that were raised evoke in you, and how did you want to respond to them, and and that kind of thing. Um, and and I, it, it's it's a it's a very sacred space, mm. um, and it requires a high degree of trust um, and vulnerability, um, and it also. Uh, things emerge from that, that you could never have predicted, right? In terms of what you see and learn about yourself and others. And I think there's, uh, I think there's a way to do that in a community, a leadership community that's often missing, right? Mm -hmm. We're very action oriented and we want to execute. Um, so we just need to know what to do and then we're ready to move. But the work that precedes that is where the real learning potential is if we create the space for it. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, 
trying to name uh, the places in our lives <laughs> where there is complete and utter clarity is that's uh, a pretty short list, right? Yeah, I love. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of the clearness committee, and as you're describing it, Lisa, I just think about um, even yeah the assumption you know that uh, even when we're trying to discern you know what's God up to amidst all of this, it's mm-hmm. that almost the assumption is God Spirit you know, wants to be heard. It's not something we have to sort of uh, puzzle over or get right, right, you know, through some kind of magical incantation or the, you know, the right set of prayers. It's literally the, it's the space um, uh, to allow it to, right? It's the quiet, yeah. it's the uh, good questions. It's the kind of vulnerability and trust that you're describing. You talked uh, there briefly at the end around <laughs> leaders typically in, in formal places of leadership are action oriented, right? It's about, and this is uh, the pressure that a leader feels. Um, this is often, you know, identify, you know, identified with somebody with a position of leadership is that that's your job is to act, act mm-hmm. decisively um, versus what you say is, uh, you know, maybe the real work of leadership is that which precedes action. How, mm-hmm. uh, when you're kind of coming into, uh, you know, a consulting relationship with an organization, you're trying to walk alongside those leaders and helping them think about a future that might be really unclear and uncertain. Uh, how, what does that look like um, in working with those kind of leaders and organizations to help recognize the fact that it's it's not necessarily about the right set of decisions. It's about this work beforehand. It's this way of proceeding. Yeah. Um, it's a, it, yeah, it, 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 one, it's, um, there are a lot of leaders who don't want to go to that space. Just there's a ton of resistance around it. Um, and it's understandable, you know, leaders, particularly ones who have been, you know, have grown up through the ranks of an organization or through a particular career path have acquired an awful lot of knowledge and expertise in their field of discipline. And they know a lot, right? Um, uh, one of one of my longtime axioms, you know, borrowed from a, a colleague is uh, what we know gets in the way of what we need to learn. Um, and and so what I'm always interested in when I'm engaging with a leader who wants my help with something is are they willing to can they learn? Right. Um, and a lot of them can't. Right? Because they're very attached to their expertise and having to be the smartest person in the room all the time. Yeah. And we've created organizational hierarchies that require that. So it's not surprising. It's just um, it's just challenging um, because when when you're in a, a space like many of us have been in over the last nine months collectively, right? We're all in this sort of place of collective trauma, right? It's, it's, you know, it, it, it creates uncertainty. The, just the very nature of it creates uncertainty. There's a, um, a phrase that, that I learned a few years ago and, and I've, I've built into my work, uh, that it's a, it's a VUCA world. I don't know if that VUCA phrase VUCA means anything. No, to you. I'm not. So VUCA is a, it's an anachronym for volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Right. Yeah. Um, and it, it actually came out of the military. Um, mm. And uh, it, 
it went back to um, the early days of, uh, I guess it would have been like the late 80s or early 90s when we were engaging in, uh, in the Middle East in some significant ways for the first time. And what, uh, what the, the generals realized and what the leaders realized was that the way they prepared for battle historically wasn't going to work in this environment. So the top-down hierarchical chain of command, you know, I'm the general, I give the order, and it takes 27 iterations to get to the guy on the ground who's actually going into the battlefield is not going to work in a in an Al-Qaeda environment, right? We have to be more nimble. And what they did was they, they set up these daily briefing calls and it was the general with the guys on the ground and all the levels in between. And the first questions went to the guys on the ground, men and women, I, mm. more men at that time, I think, than women. But um, what do you need? What's going on? What do you see? And then the people who had the authority above them to, to get them what they needed and make the adjustments organizationally or around supplies or whatever it was, were required to respond. Very different than you know the reports coming from the field going up the chain of command and then decisions coming back down the chain of command because they realized that the environment they were operating in had to be addressed minute by minute and it empowered the people who were closest to the action to yeah. do what they needed to do and to get what they needed in order to be able to proceed right um, we would do well to adopt more of that mindset in the world we're living in right now. Um, and it doesn't mean that there aren't still positional leaders in organizations, but they have to learn to listen um, down and around. And, and so the, the word I would take out of the VUCA acronym is the word complex. And when you're working in the space of complexity, which has actually become I think it has been for a while, but there's the whole science behind complexity. It's not problem solving. It requires a very different posture. Um, and most leaders have spent most of their lives building their success on problem solving, right? Um, give me a problem. I'll get to the root cause and, you know, I'll, I'll provide a solution for you. And there's a huge place for that. We need that. But complexity requires a very different posture. It requires a posture of curiosity um, it requires a posture of, I don't know, right? Um, so what do I need to learn and how can I, um, how can I, and who do I need to learn from? And it opens up the system to give lots of people who normally wouldn't be heard from, uh, a voice and, and a way to contribute, because um, it's often the person, it, it, as we learned from the military, it's the person who's closest to the action who's going to give you the best insight around what's actually happening. And if you're a good leader, you're talking to 20 of those people and you're seeing the patterns emerge that are telling you something new is going on that you can respond to. And from there you can move into action again, but that's messy and yeah. it takes time. Right. And, and leaders are with a bias for action. Don't want messy. They want to cut through that stuff and they want to move forward. So you, what I have been helping leaders who are willing, and they're not a lot of them still, even in the environment we're in, there's still resistance to this, to say, how do we create the space to deeply listen? Yes, we can't stop doing things, even in the interim, but what are the bigger patterns that we're seeing emerge and how do we want to pay attention to them? What can we learn from them 
it, you know, this, this place of complexity does require a deep humility yeah. um, that, that allows a leader to say, I don't know, I'm going to open up the space to get inputs from lots of different sources, both inside our organization and outside, so we can see what patterns emerge and what we might want to do next. Um, and, you know, as I said, it's messy. Um, it takes time. It feels um, not action oriented. So it feels like we're wasting time. But in truth, it's the most important time you could spend um, in the short term to give you better long term outcomes and direction. I think I spend a lot of time thinking about power um, and uh, and and how it, you know, how it needs to be stewarded, right? Um, and uh, I. I think that's what's going on in our world right now is a reckoning around power. Now, I don't know if I, I, my prayer is that it should it it shifts things dramatically um, in in lots of ways. Um, but people are tough, and you know, this is I think part of the disintegration of of some of the you know sort of institutions that have held a lot of power is coming because. Um, they're holding on too tight right now it's messy and it's painful and it's hard we watched that play out this week um but it's out of fear and uh and self-protection that that yeah. people move and that's not one it's not how jesus moved <laughs> oh, yeah. and 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 two it's it's not what's gonna create a way forward where there is a a different way of being in relationship with one another and stewarding the power, whatever that is that we, we have. Um, and we all have it um, in some way, shape or form, but in many cases, power is being suppressed or oppressed um, and not allowed to, to live and breathe because other kinds of power, which is more about domination and force, um, than freedom and movement is we we had, we assign lots of negative to the word power and I understand that but there is a good kind of power yeah. um, and and a creative power that we've all been imbued with as image bearers and um, we have to create the space for that power to rise and have voice. Wow, we were talking about gifts and what a gift to us to have uh, Lisa Slayton on the podcast. Well, I told you so. I know you um, did. You, de you definitely did. <laughs> when I when I talked about her being a force of nature, um, that that was not, uh, you know, uh, an overstatement. Um, yeah, I mean, just to, you know, again, just a lovely, lovely combination of some pretty remarkable gifts that she, of course, has worked on and honed and uh, cultivated uh, for herself. But uh, I. Every time Lisa speaks, um, I, I am always, uh, you know, all ears uh, because it's a, it's a remarkable way that she uh, has been able to do and interpret life. Yeah. Well, we appreciate that. And we also want to wrap up our episode with a recommendation from Lisa. We, we uh, at the end of our episodes, ask someone, usually our guests, sometimes we uh, pinch hit for them, but we want to ask them uh, what would help us see more clearly uh, the city has playground and it could be, mm -hmm. you know, a book, an idea, a practice, uh, you know, it could just be anything that's, that's, uh, that's something they recommend. And so we've got this recommendation from Lisa. 
the one I thought about um, in preparation for this was uh, a book I picked up last year um, and that I have found to be very helpful uh, by uh, a theologian named Tom Wright, N.T. Wright. Some of you are familiar with him. He's an Anglican theologian uh, out of, I think he's based at Oxford now or St. Andrews. Um, and he wrote a book called Broken Signposts, um, How Christianity Makes Sense of the World. And he identifies in the book seven signposts that we need to be paying attention to um, if we're to be about the, the mending of the world in the now and not yet of the kingdom. Right? You know, I, my, my theology and eschatology informs me that we're the kingdom will come and it will be perfected with the return of Jesus. But in the now and not in the not yet, we are still to be about the work of, of restoration and renewal and justice and all of those things. Um, even though it will probably not be perfected. I know it won't be perfected in my lifetime. And, and Tom, I, Tom Wright identifies these seven signposts of justice, love, spirituality, beauty, freedom, truth, and power as the things that need to be mended in our world. Um, and uh, if you stop and pay attention, you can always see glimpses of the coming kingdom, even in the most broken parts of any area of a city. Um, and, and so on the bad days, it's looking for those signposts and moving towards them in some way to say, can I be part of mending this signpost in some way? And I think that's at the heart of the DNA of the Leadership Foundation movement and network um, is where we're signpost menders um, in our spaces and in our cities. And it's it's a, it, there, it just, it's hope, right? It gives me hope um, that even in the messiness of the, of the current state of the world, there are signposts that we can point to and say, I can be about the business of mending that one today, right? The book is called Broken Signposts uh, by N.T. Wright. Um, and uh, I commend it to, to our listeners with great joy and conviction. Well, there we have it. That's the second in our series that we're uh, headed into this new year, Traditioned Innovation. And we thank Lisa Slayton so much uh, for being our guest. Thanks to uh, Noah Basket for that great interview. Uh, thanks to you, Dave. And if you are listening and you'd like to give us some advice or some ideas or input in any way, uh, you can always get a hold of us. Info at leadershipfoundations.org. Till next time, take care. <laughs>